What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. And today we are joined by Professor Jimmy Lee Beeson II. Did I say that right, Jimmy? Yes. Okay, yay. (laughs) (laughs) A member of the Osage Nation, Professor Beeson teaches in an Indigenous American Indian Studies Department at Haskell University in Lawrence, Kansas. Much of his work involves sharing indigenous history, culture, and values with native youth and adults. I wanted to note that by teaching and mentoring indigenous students, Jimmy is doing the exact kind of decolonizing work that helps to combat the legacy of indigenous erasure that was perpetuated by the residential school system across Turtle Island. Hey, Jimmy, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Really, really happy to be chatting with you. And thank you so much for being willing to come on the show to talk about some of these uh, heavy topics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to be here and have this discussion. Hell yeah. And we are drinking the Osage Native Cooler, <laughs> <laughs> which is a mocktail. It's a delicious, really refreshing drink um, that I'm loving. I didn't have a non-alcoholic spirit to add, like seed lip, um, so I just used water and sparkling water with uh there's like honey and lime and fresh cucumber and then a mint leaf sprig added to it it's really 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 delicious so thank you for introducing me to this kind of cocktail it's so good (laughs) yeah no problem so (laughs) (laughs) cheers do you want to tell us a little bit about why um you choose not to drink and why why we decide to go with the mocktail today when it comes to like alcohol today in native communities, there's a long history with alcohol being introduced early on through the trade relationships that native communities had with um, the settler colonial system and yeah. how alcohol was deliberately introduced to destabilize communities. Yeah. And then as you know, we kind of go along through history and, with the reservation era and then what we're talking about today with the boarding schools, a lot of times, um, you know, the men and women of our communities felt that was their apocalypse, right? Being forced onto yeah. a reservation and having to deal with that reality of their whole way of life being uh, pretty much taken away from them. Yeah. So then you kind of get into um, the self-medication and then how that in turn turns into, you know, abuse and how that passed down to the generation. So there's a, there's kind of a mixed, I guess, perspective on that. There, there's some native folks who looking at things traditionally, like, you know, I don't drink. And then, um, there's others who can, and they're okay with like having a few, you know, drinks here and there. Mm -hmm. But to me, that was just my personal choice. My decolonization journey was because I used to drink, but I just, you know, when I was around 26, I quit getting into more native activism and trying to advocate for positive change. You have to kind of keep your wits about you. And I felt for me personally, that was like something I needed to do to be able to just kind of stay, you know, one step ahead because yeah, especially if you're looking at things like as a battle, like, you know, we're in a war, I, I think, you know, in terms of like having to combat indigenous erasure and how we're Mm -hmm. seen and you're always kind of having to stay focused at least those of us who have 
I don't want to say have to, but it's almost like you have to like be there to challenge these systems and challenge these narratives that disparage us. And to me, it was yeah. always about like, well, I'm just, I'm not going to, you know, and buy because that that's my personal choice to try to maintain, you know, myself. Yeah. Also, I think on a spiritual side, there's a, a component of uh, avoiding it because that was some of the teachings I was given is to avoid, you know, alcohol and things like that. So, mm-hmm. and, and setting an example, especially if you're in a kind of a mentor capacity or a leadership capacity. Totally. You know, you kind of want to stay, uh, be able to be the best you can be at any time, you know, because you never know when you might be called upon to assist or uh, be there for somebody in the community, you know. Yeah, that's beautiful. But, you know, if others choose to, that that's, that's you know, that's their choice, you know, so I don't, you know, say anything about that, but that, that's just for yeah. me, you know, and the responsibilities that I have, you know, and mm-hmm. if others, they may not have those same responsibilities. So, you know, they want to hang out and enjoy a few drinks, you know, that's, <laughs> that you know, that's their choice too. So, yeah, totally. No, I, I really respect that you have chosen to to kind of inhabit this kind of leadership mentorship role, especially in relation to indigenous youth. And it's probably sets such a better model uh, to, to lead the way for other people who are trying to navigate such murky territory being indigenous and with the legacy of, of alcohol consumption and how it's been used. Mm -hmm. I mean, I even know that it was used getting native leaders drunk before they sign treaties and things like that, like literally mm-hmm. used as a tool to steal land um, mm-hmm. in addition to just otherwise destabilizing communities. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think you're doing a, an amazing thing by, by abstaining. <laughs> Cheers to you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, that's in that's why we have the uh, Osage Native, was it cooler or <laughs> the mocktails? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if yeah. you do feel like having a refreshing, you know, moment to sit down <laughs> and, you know, like, well, I don't really want to drink, but I want something else. You know, I'll yeah. have the mocktail, you know, so. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to be hanging out with a sober friend of mine later today, and I'm going to try to make her another one of these because it's so freaking good. So. <laughs> Is there anything else about your background that people should know about? Just some uh, personal things, you know, uh, being a family man, um, have, an, uh, have a wife and three children. And then I'm originally from Oklahoma and I lived also a big part of my life in El Paso, Texas. Oh, wow. I lived there with my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And so I think kind of leaving Oklahoma really opened my eyes to the world, you know, because uh, Oklahoma yeah. has its own kind of particular, um, well, it's Oklahoma. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. You know, it's like, you know, right now what they the banning of abortion and oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah. just the whole, you know, uh, the buckle of the Bible belt, right? No. So, <laughs> yeah. And so kind of getting away from that allowed me to, you know, meet see the world in a different way. Um, and I even kind of was looking at things in a different way anyway, um, growing Mm -hmm. up, but, but yeah, it was kind of good to have that experience, but that also was challenging, I think, in terms of like growing up away from my community and being somewhat removed from, uh, being close to, uh, you know, more like my grandma and people on, Mm -hmm. you know, my, 
you know, of course, the native community and kind of maybe missing out on some things. Mm-hmm. And I know that contributed to different uh, maybe some some challenges in terms of how I uh, viewed myself as a native person, mm-hmm. a young native yeah. you know, teenager, you know, trying to find their way in the world and then yeah. um, and then going back. I think that part of that led to my journey of like reading and studying a lot because my mom got me into reading when I was uh, at a very young age. She used to order those Time Life books back in the um, early 90s that you could order like a bunch of them and they would deliver them every now and then. Like, <laughs> And I would spend my time reading them and um, that kind of piqued awesome. my interest in just reading. And then in turn, my mom talked highly of the American Indian movement oh, and she referred amazing. to uh, Russell Means as Uncle Russell and stuff like that. So <laughs> awesome. it was kind of like, um, That's badass. <laughs> I know. So it's just like being kind of, and then I had a cousin who was uh, affiliated with AIM and it's just so there was like all these different things growing up as a teenager and then having to, uh, you know, I wanted to read, I wanted to learn about those things. So I would get books on, you know, the concept of red power and American mm-hmm. Indian movement, reading Russell Means's autobiography and reading different things about that. And then also meeting some of those folks from those movements and having those wow. discussions with them um, wow. really kind of shaped my perspective on things because at a young age, I got really, uh, I was really became, became apparent that I was different from my like white friends growing up in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, some of the racist remarks they would say to me, you know, either yeah. either it was something along the lines of like you're Mexican, or you know they would oh, have, they would say like border jumper, or beaner, and they would say Jesus. all these things, Ugh. and then they find oh oh you're native, well you're a wagon burner, you know, and the <laughs> prairie n word, you know, and there's this kind of oh like, my god. Um, so just kind of dealing with that stuff uh, really shaped kind of my perspective on like white suburban youth culture. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, that I was bet. The, that was the immediate go to was just a long list of insults, you know, to, yeah. to say. And, uh, but of course, I you know, growing up at that time, um, I said stuff back, you know, things like that, and <laughs> defended myself. And yeah, growing up with my mom and. My grandma and my aunt, they were all pretty uh, strong-willed, are strong-willed. Um, my grandma passed, but, you know, my aunt and my mom are That's still sorry. here. and um, But they were always ready to throw down, too. You know, they always kind of <laughs> like, uh, they would get like, my mom always shared the kind of racism that she experienced at her jobs. And oh, wow. she was always like ready to, you know, throw down, too. So I kind of had that <laughs> fighting spirit because of my grandma. Yeah. You know, she was Seminole and Creek, and then the, the history of the Seminoles, you know, down in Florida is like they never signed a treaty and fought, you know, oh, yeah. um, resisted, you know, the American invasion. So I always kind of like uh, viewed that as a source of pride because my grandma was like, nah, it's okay to fight. It's okay. You know, so as a man, you know, sometimes other men will think that, oh, you get that fighting spirit from your, from the dads and you know, all this no. stuff. But not, I was like, no, I got it from like my mom, grandma, and my aunt. You know? I so, love it. That's amazing. Because, <laughs> you know, they always, you know, they they weren't afraid to speak their minds, you know, or get out there and, you know. Yeah. Especially with stuff going on or things they had to deal with, you know. That's amazing. So I got that from them. And so I think that really fueled my, uh, a lot of my uh, willingness to 
uh, challenge these things on top of being educated, like self-educated and then getting into the university. Because uh, I also went to Haskell as a student and then oh, wow. okay. um, nice. learning about things about our uh, history. And it's like the more you learn, the more you kind of get pissed off (laughs) (laughs) and you know and if you don't get pissed off as a native person reading about everything that we've been through then yeah i think something's probably like i don't know something's probably wrong wrong. (laughs) yeah yeah, totally (laughs) if you're not feeling angry about it then you know i don't know i don't know what to say about that but but that's the thing is that not to let the anger consume you but you know guide it towards like you know something constructive and towards a positive change. Yeah. But yeah, that's just, I guess, just kind of giving my personal background a little bit on how, like, how did I end up teaching and why do I, you know, speak out on these things? So a lot of it had to do with my personal upbringing, you know, what I was taught growing up and how I was shaped, you know, with with different people, different mentors. And I love that that fighting spirit was instilled from the women in your family. I'm going to think about that a lot. And I, I keep coming across so many just impassioned, strong, brilliant women as I do this anti-capitalist work. Um, I really think women are going to be the leaders of the future in a lot of ways mm-hmm. <laughs> and be the ones leading some of the positive change that needs to happen mm-hmm. to make progress, you know, so uh, it's that's reassuring to hear that it was that was the case in your life too. And thank you so much for just kind of giving us that look into your background. That's exactly kind of what I wanted to hear about, like how you came to teach and everything, um, mm-hmm. doing this amazing work that you're doing. Can you tell us a little bit about your work as a professor who teaches Native youth and adults about Indigenous history and culture? Like, what does that look like? What kind of role are you playing in these people's lives <laughs> that you're teaching? Uh, yeah, can you just tell us a bit about your work? So I think that was the thing is like, it's just interesting because I didn't always intend or plan on becoming a professor. Um, it it kind of just happens with, um, so when I was uh, working at Haskell as um, a retention, like a counselor, like a retention counselor, mm-hmm. trying to help students, well, they say retention technician. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's like the official <laughs> title, right? Um, is that just so, to keep them in school? Yeah. So, um okay. It's we provided tutoring and some kind of low level counseling, not therapy, but mm, you yeah, know, yeah, just yeah. trying to help students with the resources they need to um, keep going and awesome. to finish. Especially with uh, Haskell being a hundred percent native, there's a lot of different challenges that our students face. Yeah, you know, maybe from the background they came from, the community, the home life. Yeah, and then not only that, being just a college student trying to uh, figure out the world. Yeah, that whole perspective was there when I was working uh, as a retention technician. And then mm-hmm. I get I got into teaching because they had a first year seminar um, class and they wanted people, staff who weren't faculty to teach some of those because they wanted mm-hmm. staff to get have that experience with the students. And because sometimes you're kind of in these silos where you don't get a lot of experience or interaction with the students if you're working in certain mm. areas. At least yeah. ours, we we did uh, um, on a service level. But being we were asked if we wanted to teach some of these classes. So I did that for like a year and a half. So I got experience teaching. And then um, and then when the, the job came up for like a permanent faculty, I, I got it. Wow. And I like doing it. 
And I real I feel really strongly about it because I always think that back on my experiences, like in public schools, how much they leave out about Native people, oh our history, gosh. not only the uh, like the genocide and the wars and the conflict, but just our resilience and our ability to uh, stand strong and to we always had that fighting spirit. Yeah. So I think that I wanted to encapsulate that within my teaching. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the focus on that is um, like my own personal like teaching philosophy that I wanted to not only show like what occurred to us, but also show the um, like I said, the, the fighting spirit of our people, because I don't just yeah. focus on things like, you know, the Trail of Tears and, you know, the the reservations and the boarding schools. And those are very important, but I also like to highlight the fact that the U.S. government had a hard time getting these lands because we fought, because we <laughs> were willing yeah. to um Sac- make sacrifices and blood was spilled through the centuries to maintain our ways. And even when we were put on reservations and had our ceremonies outlawed and criminalized, we were yeah. still willing to take those things underground so that our people today could have it and have our, our ceremonies and our language and our ways. Um, so it's like, no matter what the government threw at us, we were able to, uh, duck and dodge it a little mm-hmm. bit here and there and uh, maintain. Mm-hmm. And that's why we still have a land base today. So I always try to look at my teaching as like an empowerment perspective. Yeah. Because that knowledge will help to me, at least from my teaching philosophy, that the more you know about your history, the, the greater your foundation of who you are is going to be, which will in turn mm-hmm. help you give you a better um, kind of a moral and cultural compass to maneuver this world that we're living in yeah which is really other people's reality that's made for us to live in and um not in alignment with our original teachings as a people and those teachings are different from tribe to tribe but i'm just kind of speaking generally yeah so i always try to impart that on the students that you know the knowledge of themselves in their culture is what's paramount Mm -hmm. and then once they get that knowledge or they build upon it it's up to them to kind of figure out what to do with it you know because i can only do so much and plus there's only so much you can do in a classroom you know so yeah 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 and what does the mentorship side of things look like i'm I'm sure that i'm sure that so many of the students that you work with are i mean they are so lucky to have access to someone like you who's a wealth of knowledge about the history but also has gone through these things themselves has has you know had their own journey with um, you know, trying to maintain a relationship with your culture, you know, uh, I, I'm sure that it is just so, so beneficial for these young folks to be able to connect with you and see you as a, uh, a person who has already navigated this world and, and has some of the answers for them, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, one part, I hope, I hope that that's what I can, uh, provide for them. And in a lot of cases, you know, the mentorship part, it kind of comes out generally, like through the teaching, like if I'm lecturing or talking about things and trying to um, give that insight and encouragement, like mm-hmm. as, as a native people, this is who we are and don't let anyone take that away from you. And the, the struggle we have today is trying to maintain our identity and trying to reclaim it. Mm-hmm. But 
on a kind of more one-to-one level, there are the students who will come like and visit or contact me outside the class and ask for guidance and help. We'll also provide advisement to students. So that can mm-hmm. come that way too. But there are those students that I've formed um, positive mentoring relationships with when they keep coming back and want to let me know how the day is or they ask for advice, something's going on in, in their life outside the classroom. Yeah. There's young families who, uh, you know, young men who come in and talk about things and trying to just give the best advice I can and and how to approach things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that happens too um, on a kind of like a spiritual path um, mm. because I think Haskell is in unique in that because we're a small community or, or a small college and there's a lot of folks around there who are still in touch with um, like their ceremonies and mm. there's places around that we have like Sweat Lodge and EP. We wow. have that. So that is one way in which um, I try to help them if that's something they want to be a part of is re, uh, getting reconnected to that path. And then amazing. And, you know, inviting them to do that and then just kind of introducing them to that. Mm-hmm. Like right now, like today, um, I had a student get a hold of me because they're supposed to have a, um, a sweat um, this weekend and uh, he wanted to be a part of it and he never went. He's never been to a sweat, and, but he wow. knows about it. So, yeah. you know, it, it feels good to be able to kind Amazing. of like uh, get them on that path if that's what they want to do, you know. Yeah. Because we're it's not like Christianity where we're banging on people's doors trying to get them yeah. <laughs> demanding <laughs> and then fearing them into doing something, right? Because oh, um, uh, with us, there's no judgment, no condemnation. It's, you know, it's all about, you know, what, what your choices are and yeah. how you feel about um, what you want to do, however much you want to put into that those ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that's – and it's always a good feeling, you know, when you talk to students and you talk to young people who talk about being raised in, like, a Christian home or something like that, and then they end up – finding their traditional ways or they get in touch with uh family members who still walk that way and then they end up abandoning like the church and stuff um Mm -hmm. because they want to focus on that way Mm -hmm. so i think that's always cool when when i hear those stories about that because that was kind of my path you know i grew up going to a a church too and then i mean i didn't fully like commit to it because i even had i was questioning that at a young age too but Mm -hmm. But as I got older, it really solidified within me after I went to like my first sweat when I was in my early 20s and like, Mm -hmm. wow, this is the path that I want to walk. This is what speaks to my spirit. This is what speaks to me. This is something that I feel I need. Uh, This is what it it is. So being able to share that and then to mentor students and help students walk that path, you know, it feels good to do that, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. And it's, I, it has to be incredibly healing for you and for the other folks that you're working with and, and helping to lead in this direction. I mean, so much of the harm that settler colonial society has done to indigenous communities, especially on Turtle Island, it it is being undone by teaching them, reestablishing these connections with culture, teaching them ways that were lost, language that was lost. Mm-hmm. It's It's a really beautiful thing that you're doing. And I'm... Yeah, so impressed by the work that you're doing every day. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I was hoping you could shed some light on the history of the residential school system. Why were these institutions created and what were they like for the students who were forced to attend? And also, like, 
what role did this play in perpetuating indigenous erasure? So mm-hmm. that's that's a lot. However, you want to approach that. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you know, the the simple answer is that Native people weren't viewed as human. You know, we weren't viewed as human beings. We were just obstacles yeah. in the way of so-called colonial progress. Yeah. So once these so-called Indian wars were over and we were placed on, forced on to reservations, the United States government policy was to essentially like, well, we, we can't keep spending money on trying to fight with the adults. And of course, the, the capitalist uh, <laughs> part of them, it's more uh, economically feasible to take their children and indoctrinate mm. them and brainwash them mm-hmm. into turn them into white people, right? At least yeah. within their thinking and their thought process. Mm-hmm. That will cut down on any kind of future wars or conflicts we have to spend money on, right? Mm-hmm. But they did put money into the schools. They put a lot of money into them, you know, in terms of paying uh for the construction of them, the staffing mm-hmm. of them. Even though they were chronically underfunded, uh, like as opposed to other schools that were teaching white kids. A lot of times they were underfunded because uh, the administrators and staff were just kind of skimming off the top. Oh, um, Jesus. You know. <laughs> I didn't know that part of the Whoa, story. The, ah. the- <laughs> What a clusterfuck. Here's here's money for the school. Okay, thanks. And then the white administrators would be like, oh, I'm going to put like half of this in my pocket and then the rest will go to these kids. Right? Jesus. (laughs) Very Christian of them. (laughs) Yeah. Very Christian. Very, you know, looking out for the the youth. And that's the thing. You know, it's like these institutions were um, one. Even though it began, the concept of them began under Richard Henry Pratt, Mm -hmm. the staffing came in large part from the Christian missionaries who were all too willing to go out and, you know, save savage souls and all this stuff and try to um, get uh, children saved and everything. The churches would compete, right? Yeah, they were competing with with the Osages, with us. There was a lot of different, uh, you know, we had the Protestants, we had the Quakers, and in the end, the Catholics kind of won because a lot of Osages today are Catholics. (laughs) So um, it's just like, yeah, but they all were like vultures circling around, you know, trying to save (laughs) indigenous souls and, you know, which which one is going to be on top. And so it was like a bidding war, right? You know, it's like, hey, all these, you know, churches put out their... uh, their bid and like we want to go here want to go there and the government picks you know whoever and mm-hmm. but in the end no matter which denomination essentially the same things happen children were abused children were yeah. harmed uh either sexually verbally yeah physically mentally it, you know a lot of times it was just straight out torture for a lot of the yeah. children yeah the that, that's pretty much just the concept of the so-called boarding schools was to turn native children into farmers, white Christian people, disconnect them from their 
communities so that we can, or at least the, um, you know, the, the government, the United States could go in and, um, have a lot easier time in taking land and taking, you mm-hmm. know, because once you take away that identity, they're not going to be willing to fight for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing is turning them into individuals, turning them into, capitalists right they need to have money yeah. in their pocket they need to go out and work a farm and they need to do all these things and they need to be good christians and and they need to have their own little plot of land and then that in turn frees up the rest of the land for whatever corporation whatever company wants to go in and start exploiting all the resources right so mm-hmm. um it's a, it's all just like one big part of an overall scheme just to get at the land right yeah 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 uh-huh the whole rhetoric of civilizing that that's just re- rhetoric and that's just um that's just the justification but in the end it's all comes down to taking the land and taking you know those resources that are there and one way to do mm-hmm. that to get to get the native problem out of the way is to yeah. take the children take the future generation that's willing to fight back and put them in these schools so that they were will no longer have any connection to the land and even want to protect it Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. think that's, you know, the, the, the straightforward version of why those schools are so-called schools are created Yeah, to uh, disconnect us from our families, our worldview and our connection to the land and connection mm-hmm. with each other. So mm-hmm. that for, in turn um, frees it up for whoever wants to come in and exploit all that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you just touched upon it, but I I know that in addition to kind of preparing the boys to be like farm workers, to do these really lower class, working class you know, uh, jobs, they were also like training the women a lot of the time to be like homemakers and servants. So they were really, they were institutions designed to like pump out these lower class workers who will then be able to serve the white communities, you know, and Mm. can you talk a little bit more about like um, these, these work programs that they Mm. were involved with? Can you tell us how those worked? The outing programs were ways in which there was two purposes. One was to turn native children into laborers, you know, Mm -hmm. and servants. And then coupled with that is if they went out and became servants, laborers with white farmers, white families, white homes, that would also serve the purpose of assimilating them into that type of living, right? Mm Because the more time they spend with white people, the more they're going to become like white people. That's So Uh that's the design and the thinking behind those programs is twofold. You know, it's like, well, we'll get them to become productive citizens we don't want them to be doctors. We don't want them to be lawyers. <laughs> oh, we don't want them uh, to be, you know, these other things. But, yeah. you know, they can be, you know, farmers and they can help with the cattle and they can, you know, they can, you know, have menial tasks to do. And on the other hand, it, they would yeah, be essentially servants to uh, uh, white families. It, it, yeah. You know, when Haskell used to be the um, Indian Industrial Institute um 
back in the 1880s, uh, yeah, the white families around here would benefit from them because that's they would go out and they would be like servants, you know. Yeah. Um, and in a worst case scenario, they would go to these families and be molested or be abused mm-hmm. in some way mm-hmm. um, and then sent back to the, the school. Yeah. Even though um, they sound benevolent, like, oh, they're going to learn these work skills and stuff. But it was like the lowest, you know, possible thing they could do, like the skills. And um, sometimes, you know, a lot of times they didn't get paid or anything. Um, Or, uh, you know, so, yeah, that was essentially those outing programs had those two purposes. uh, One was assimilation. Two was to provide a cheap source of labor for white families. And not only were they preparing these students to be the underclass of workers, they were also using them at that moment as essentially slave labor, um, mm-hmm. you know, unpaid labor. I, I I did read a few places that since these schools were chronically underfunded, a lot of the like operations of the schools were kind of put in the hands of these students who got nothing in return for it. But that, and they had these half day programs. So half of your day, you're, you're like in a classroom learning, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other half, you are doing slave labor. So or like working on a ranch and, you know, and then making money for, I guess, the school, right? Is that is that how it worked? As far as like them getting paid? I'm, I'm not too sure on that as far as mm-hmm. the uh, the money was exchanged. I think there was, again, there was kind of like this uh, bidding process where families, ranchers would put forward like, oh, we would like some some of your Indians to come help us out, you know, all this Jeez, stuff. And, yeah. um, then they would go help them or help them, with, right, with the, yeah, <laughs> with the task yeah. around, you know, the ranch or the house. Mm-hmm. In some cases, there might have been some money given to them, but for the most part, it, you know, there was no pay but in also that speaks to the difference in policies because it also depended on because each school each community had different policies because it would depend on the local superintendent Mm -hmm. as to how they wanted to implement that outing program yeah but yeah definitely it was kind of like a type of uh slave labor they were they were working for nothing uh many times and then encountering lots of racism while they were doing it and then mm-hmm. having to go back to uh, the school later. Yeah. So, yeah, that was definitely uh, something that wasn't, you know, as benevolent as they put it to be. Yeah. I can't even imagine, like, the shitstorm that would happen if white kids were expected to work half the day. Mm-hmm. Like, the Karens, the moms that would be just freaking <laughs> the, the fucks out. The soccer moms, yeah, like we were talking about before. God, yeah. there would be a, a nightmare for schools if, if, if they tried to make white kids do this shit. But, yeah, uh, yeah, that's – and then speaking back to that, bring, when you were talking about half day, yeah, it was – here is a typical day of uh, a boarding school, waking up at 5.30 in the morning to having a bugle call because it was all military, right? It was administered oh, wow. militarily. Um, and then they would um, go to breakfast and then they wouldn't have very good food. It was yeah. usually uh, consisted of uh, mush, which was Ugh, like cornmeal with water in it, uh, boiled and like gravy and some coffee, right? So that would be their morning. And then they would march to maybe a class and then they would maybe have some physical activity, but the rest of their time was taken up when they weren't in classes, you know, learning basic arithmetic. Mm-hmm. They were uh, they were doing drills. They were marching around from place mm. to place in formation in military uniforms. Wow. 
that's that's where that but it was highly uh militarized because again that's where it came from was captain uh richard henry pratt who began that you know process he actually got the idea for the boarding school from pow's prisoners of war which is not even accurate because the U.S. never even officially declared war on Native people. <laughs> any oh point my gosh! In time. Um, yeah. But they were considered like war captives, so like Geronimo and his uh, like the Apache guerrilla fighters and different uh-huh. um, natives who fought. They would be sent once if they were captured. Once they were captured, they were sent to um, military prisons, military forts, wow. and while they were there they would be subjected to like digging latrines or uh, doing all this kind of menial uh, labor. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's where uh, Pratt got the idea oh, for, um, because he, they would give him military uniforms oh, and they God. would like could work for, uh, they were given some, a little bit of money so they could go walk around in town and go get some stuff, but they had to come back. So, so that's where that he got that. He was like, well, if wow. we do this with the kids, we can actually turn them into like American citizens and stuff. So yeah, that's where that whole thing came from was, uh, the, the military and it was a military and the Christian missionaries who worked in collusion with each other at these boarding schools. Wow. So they they would march from place to place. Um, They had kind of like collective punishment, collective discipline, so-called discipline. There were jails at these um, institutions where they would put little kids in. If they ran away and got caught and brought them back, they would put them in jail. Yeah. And they also had like whipping lines where um, they would have the other kids beat the other kids who were getting out of line. And that's that was creating that kind of lateral oppression and that self hatred, totally. right? Because because totally. you have you're using native children to hurt and harm other native children. Totally. And in Ugh. turn, those ones who are willing to go along with it, you know, they would get perks and benefits, right? Yeah. So that's the Ugh. thing too, is like I think it's important to know that that a lot of children had those horrible experiences, but there was those ones who for their own survival were willing to go along with the program yeah you know and to be kind of like those uh enforcers and getting the perks and getting mm-hmm. you know the extra scoop or whatever and things like that probably getting not beat as much you know? yeah not getting beat as much like you uh, won't get beat you can give the beatings and we won't beat you uh, right yeah so kind of that mentality. and you even had those hierarchies within the schools and a lot of the uh mm-hmm. um, accounts speak to that you know having like older kids in those positions of like this semi-authority that was given to them by the school administrators yeah monitoring their own people monitoring oh my their own, gosh you know when world war one occurred the boarding schools were essentially like recruiting stations because they were already Whoa. trained militarily. They already knew Whoa. how to march. They already knew how to take orders. Oh my so when uh, World War One came along, they would just show up and be like, hey, just throw a gun, a rifle in their hands, and they're willing, yeah. they're already ready to go. Wow. And that was another thing, too, is that um, how the military and the missionaries exploited our warrior culture of defense and fighting mm. and willing to defend our communities. They took that idea and were like basically telling these kids, like, well, your people are warriors. You need to fight so you can go fight over there. Right? Fight our war. Yeah, fight our war. Don't fight <laughs> us, right? Yeah. Oh <laughs> Don't fight God. us. You know, fight <laughs> them. And they yeah. would, you know, of course, being away from home, and that's all they know would, you know, get into that. And yeah. 
course, there was a perk to that. You would get offered um, U.S. citizenship, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, there was this wow. whole kind of uh, incentivized program of uh, assimilating them with um, mm. with perks and promises. Wow. The whole military connection was kind of a blind spot for me before. Like, I knew that Pratt was involved, you know, with uh, that he cared about the military, but I didn't realize how much it was like, based on prisoner of war uh, facilities, <laughs> basically mm-hmm. based on a prison environment. They are they are modeling this whole environment on a prison and on a military system, which I'm kind of surprised by because you would think that they wouldn't want these these indigenous people to be able to fight <laughs> at all, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah. I guess if they're sending them, the, them off to fight their wars, then that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Well, that's where that whole, you know, indoctrination process comes into play is the fact that, you know, if they, we can indoctrinate them into being U.S. citizens and think of themselves as Americans, yeah, then they won't want to fight us. They mm-hmm. want to fight whoever we tell them to fight. Yeah, And exactly. that, that's how powerful that diabolical but powerful indoctrination mm-hmm. process comes into play is um, breaking down that. Not defending your community, but defending whatever is told for you to do, you know, at that time. Like, you listen to us, whoever the enemy is, whoever we tell you it is, right? (laughs) Yeah, God. And yeah, the the military was highly involved in that, you know, everything down to, you know, the bugle. You know, when the, at the end of the day, when the kids uh, would go to bed, they would go to bed with taps, you know. Oh my gosh. uh, You know, that whole taps that bugle song? sound yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and um what the hell bring ringing up the flag and all that stuff and um it, yeah so the military was the uh well carlisle actually was before it was carlisle boarding school it was a uh, military barracks oh yeah that oh there was that military connection too my god ah this was kind of blowing my mind a little bit <laughs> Like it's, I don't know. Of course, it's all connected to U.S. militarism as well as all these other mm-hmm. horrible, horrible parts of settler colonial culture. So right, exactly. You mentioned that some of the students would sometimes be used to exert control over the younger kids, you know, divide and conquer them, get get them on the side of the settler to do the bidding of the settler against the indigenous kids next to them. But I I also heard some great stories from, um, you know, the the testimonies that survivors have given about the older kids basically staying up at night to make sure that the younger kids wouldn't be raped and molested, abused by the the priests and the nuns and people that Mm -hmm. would come in later at night. Like there, there was actual... In addition to being divided up, there was also this solidarity, this community mm-hmm. of like looking out for each other, like because no one else here is going to do it. So mm-hmm. they had to really like stand up for the other indigenous kids. And sometimes that meant, you know, a group of indigenous youth confronting a pastor, a priest. Yeah, I've I heard a whole bunch of different stories that were kind of in that vein, mm-hmm. um, which were inspirational just to see that like there was that resistance going on within these schools, even as they were being forced into these horrible situations and these horrible mindsets. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. There was that spirit of resistance there. Um, so the, you had you did have those different little um, groups within the schools. Like we said, some of them went along with it, but then the other ones who resisted and did what they could and the ways in which they resisted were watching out for each other, continuing to speak their language, continuing mm. to, they were familiar with their ceremonial ways, their way of praying and stuff, they would still do that. Mm-hmm. Like at Haskell, when they talked about the wetlands south of the campus, that's where a lot of the kids would go to um quietly like say their prayers and do the things that they were taught yeah and not only that they would uh more kind of outright instances of resistance like from physically fighting with the administrators actually you know physically punching and hitting and kicking um or even burning down some of the the dorms Mm. kids breaking other kids out when they were locked up you know Mm -hmm. one of the most simple ways that they could resist was running away. Yeah. A lot of uh, a lot of kids uh, just ran away. Mm-hmm. When I was looking up Haskell's documents uh, from the cultural center, um, I found a letter that talked about my grandfather, hmm. whose white name, the, the name that he got, uh, Theodore Harvey, but he also was known as Numpakwa in, in um, hmm. Osage. And he went wow. to Haskell back when it was a boarding school in the late 1800s. And I found a letter with his name on there talking about him and uh, his cousin running away back to Oklahoma, back to their community. And then how in the letter, the superintendent or the the agent was talking about not paying them the money they were owed them because they ran away or something like that. So, um, so yeah, yeah, there was a lot of kids who just ran away. Sometimes they were successful, you know, and a lot. Sometimes if it was wintertime and they were real little, they would die in the winter yeah, trying to find yeah. their way home. And that was yeah. the other thing too about how um, the administrators of these institutions thought was like a lot of times too. They would send kids hundreds of miles away, so if yeah. they did run away, they wouldn't be in familiar territory. They couldn't get back. They couldn't yeah, make they that couldn't connection. Get back. And it, the surrounding white communities kind of became de facto watch guards, you know, oh, if God. they found the kids, they would grab them, snatch them and take them back to the school oh, Jesus. Uh, where they would get thrown into like jail and get punished and all this stuff. Yeah. So. yeah. Heard about kids getting like chained to beds and things like that after running away and just beaten mercilessly, just uh, horrific stuff. I mean, I guess on that note, Maybe it would be good just to offer a little bit of an overview of some of the like numbers, figures, some of the data about residential schools, like how many there were. So many different graves have been uncovered of the children who attended these schools, hundreds, thousands of of bodies being found. I feel like it would be good to just kind of give people an overview of that. In Canada, 150,000 Indigenous children were stolen from their families. There were about 130 residential schools, a little bit more, in Canada. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened a few years back in Canada said that around 4,100 children died at these schools. But the real figure could be as high as 15,000 up in Canada. Then if, if you look to the U.S., which hasn't had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which hasn't done nearly the the kind of you know, searching and excavating that um, has happened up north, there were around 400 boarding schools between 1860 
1978. The first federal study found about 50 burial sites and around 500 deaths, and that's only at 19 schools, 19 out of 400. So with around 380 schools still unexplored, the numbers of the children that died at these residential schools on American soil is going to continue to climb. It's going to be in the thousands, most likely the tens of thousands that we're going to mm-hmm. see. Yeah, it's just the the magnitude and the 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 horrificness of of this atrocity that was committed on Turtle Island on in North America is just it's so hard to fathom and I don't know, hopefully some of these numbers give you a little bit better idea of the scope of this mm-hmm. nightmare. <laughs> uh, was there anything that you would want to add to just kind of like being able to quantify some of this, some of these horrors? A lot of the deaths that occurred uh, were um, through a disease. Um, mm-hmm. There was a lack of adequate medical care. You know, like, again, uh-huh. they, they were... Um, underfunded, uh, as we talked about, there was yeah, funding yeah, given, yeah. but also, you know, uh, money didn't, wasn't used for its intended purpose. So yeah. there was no, uh, adequate medical care. So a, a lot of students, uh, died from, you know, tuberculosis, TB. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of speaks to the type of living quarters they had. Yeah. Yeah. I found documents, um, at Haskell, um, some of the, the kids that were there talking about, um, they wrote a petition and they all signed it asking about why there's so many deaths happening to their fellow students. Sometimes they didn't know, you know, mm. so they lived in cramped living quarters, uh, close to one another, and they would just be passing around whatever, uh, sickness was going on among them. Yeah. At Haskell, there is a actual marked cemetery, um, mm. With a lot of kids there, some of the, one of the youngest ones being an infant. Oh gosh! Some of the older ones being about about twenty, in the early twenties, I think. Wow! But those are the marked ones. And after the DOI put out the uh, reports about them, there's um, you know there's just a lot of talk in the Native community and amongst uh, you know the Native academic world about you know needing to locate any unmarked graves that could be there you know and not only there but like uh all over the country yeah and like you said it's uh, that number is only going to go up like with uh in colonial canada yeah those numbers kept going up and up but yeah a lot of times the children died from disease which is Mm -hmm. uh speaks to that the type of treatment they weren't getting and the and you you mentioned before that they were you know, chronically malnourished. They weren't given enough sustenance, basically. So they were already, like, susceptible to getting sick. Um, then mm-hmm. they're stuck in these these cramped, these densely packed quarters. Um, tuberculosis, which they don't have any immunities against, are, is just running rampant. Then, you know, they would... A lot of these kids would die from tuberculosis or from, you know, the the horrible... Um, like physical condition that they were left in in these mm-hmm. schools, and sometimes the the other students would be forced to even bury 
the the kids that would die, which is just mm-hmm. one of the most horrific things I've ever heard in my whole life. Like I can't I can't mm-hmm. even fathom what that would be like as a child to do. And the the part about being malnourished, and this is something that was kind of rampant throughout these schools, rather than providing nourishment when it was well known that this was a problem, some of these schools even experimented on the malnourished kids. Um, trying to see what what kinds of foods or what kinds of uh, you know things you could give them to make them you know, either do better or worse, just really, mm-hmm. really the most horrifying things <laughs> were done to these mm-hmm. kids. It's hard to overstate how bad these schools were. What humanitarian nightmares? Yeah, I wouldn't even call them like schools at this yeah, point in time. Yeah. I, I use that term kind of loosely just because totally. that's the, um, how they're, but you know, they were just pretty much, you know, indoctrination camps, you yeah. know, uh, death camps almost to a degree. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no love and compassion um, given to them in terms of, you know, uh, historically the teachings and the way we view the world and our relationship to it would have been handed down through the grandparents, the parents, Mm -hmm. aunts, uncles, Mm -hmm. but at these institutions, it was just, you know, cold hearted strangers who had no, who really just looked upon native people as just less than human and not treating them with any dignity or respect. And, Mm -hmm. you know, were highly racist. Um, didn't think that they deserved being treated well. Yeah. Yeah. I think it gets tough that thinking about these children just separated from the warmth and love of their home and being sent to these institutions, you know, and just not getting anything, um, any emotional support, you know, the love that they needed. And Mm -hmm. another thing to that, too, that a lot of people don't talk about is that um, the fact that the letters that were sent from the parents to the children never made it. The administrators Mm -hmm. wouldn't give those letters to the kids. Is that because they were in the native language and they wouldn't, I know that they wouldn't let the kids write in their native language to their parents, mm-hmm. which just means that they couldn't communicate with their mm-hmm. parents anymore. Mm-hmm. But No, no, it was mainly just because they just to create that further disconnect from oh, their parents. God. Kids would come out of the schools, ask their parents, like, why didn't you write to me? when i was there and the the parent would be like i did write to you i wrote a lot of letters to you but the staff never gave them those letters that's so so sad a lot of them would be written in uh, written in english i think some of the parents had a at least familiar with english um so and and i've seen copies of these letters um where they've written to their children and stuff so wow but that's one of those things where um uh, Dennis Banks talks a lot about that, who is uh, one of the leaders of the American Indian Movement. He talks mm. about how when he was sent to a boarding school and how he grew, uh, he kind of had this anger towards his mother because he said she never wrote him. No. <laughs> and he finds out later, he found out later in his life that they were just hiding all the letters that his mom sent them. Yeah. I mean, that would definitely drive a wedge, you know, like just leading these kids to believe that their parents don't care about them at all mm-hmm. and just have forgotten about them. Like, so now your your only family is this, you know, the the nuns and, and priests and, you know, other kids there that are going through the most horrific traumatic experiences. I I can't imagine. Maybe now would be a good point to pivot to just talking about like, how did the residential school system further capitalist goals 
and instill capitalist values into the students? Like, what what role did they play within capitalism? Going back to that talk about um, some of the uh, the supporters, the administration, uh, the boarding school policymakers, what have you, who uh, talked a lot about creating individuals mm -hmm. that they need money in their pocket, they need to become mm -hmm. farmers, they need to learn how to respect the value of money, you know, so I think that's kind of where that came in, that indoctrination process of just, um, and that's the thing too, is like not even making a whole lot of money. It's, yeah. <laughs> they, weren't even trying to, they weren't even trying to teach them to be good capitalists, right? They were just, you know, go out and be a, a, a servant for, you yeah. know, like nothing, right? Yeah. But that's that whole process, you know, getting them into thinking like money is above all else. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of times they were forced into that because they, you know, of course, a lot of these children, that's all they've been indoctrinated with for years and years and years is that you need to go out and you need to become like the successful farmer. Or you need to do, uh, you need to find work and be a laborer mm -hmm. and you need to make money and you need to put it in your pocket, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of that giving them that drive that, well, I need to go out and I need to make money. I need to go out and I need to get a job, you know? Yeah. 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 But even in, even in that case, it wasn't like they were even given the tools or the knowledge to even make a lot of money, you know, even on that end, because, um, a lot of times the government would promise to help native people with X, Y, Z. So the rhetoric is you need to become farmers and we're going to give you the tools to do that, but they wouldn't give them, they would force them on the worst possible land to yeah. create crops and wouldn't even yeah. give them all the tools necessary to do that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, not only that, of this talk of, well, you need to go out and you need to find a job or you need to become, you know, this uh, money maker, they would face a lot of just racism from mm -hmm. people, you know, from the surround, from white communities, white businesses who were trying to, um, uh, they didn't want to hire, you know, native people. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's that component of furthering capitalism, just creating that need for, you need to have money in your pocket. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Right. But even then it wasn't even like creating a way that they could even make enough money to live. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It was just, uh, and that's how a lot of, um, communities, we're just really destitute. A lot of communities now are still dealing with a lot yeah. of uh, poverty, but you know, it's, it's a manufactured poverty, right? Because it's mm -hmm. prior to colonization and all that, there was no need for money. Everything that you got was through hard work and yeah, through the land and what you did. But then if every, your access to everything is taken away, your access to game, your access to yeah. buffalo, to food, to good land, to plant crops and, or, mm -hmm. or if you're in the Northwest and you, are uh you grew up learning how to fish and salmon all those things are taken from you and denied to you then yeah yeah kind of going off on a side no no i mean uh, it's all but, interconnected and i mean uh you know it seems like so much was about like just separating native folks from their traditional ways of life breaking that kind of connection and then mm -hmm. forcing them into other avenues to to be able to sustain themselves that, <laughs> and not even to sustain themselves well, like you said, like it's mm -hmm. pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, the, the bare minimum, the bare minimal um, yeah. Uh, yeah. necessities, right? So, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, 
this whole connection between the residential schools and goals of capitalism, like we've, we've already covered a lot of that as well. In addition to like what you were just saying, um, you know, kind of teaching people to be money makers, to participate in the system. Also like, yeah, they, they're literally using these kids as, as like a source of labor. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, training them to become an underclass, they're training the women to become servants basically. Um, so yeah, it's, in so many ways connected to capitalism, so Mm -hmm. many horrible fucking ways. (laughs) So, well, yeah, that whole capitalism part is like kind of more on a broader scale uh, aside from the, the the boarding institutions is Mm -hmm. the least favorable land to create crops. It wasn't given to native people. That was given to all the wealthy, already well, well to do white farmers, you know, yeah. who got the best land so they could make the best crops and make the most money. Mm-hmm. So everything was in there geared towards their favor, you know? Yeah. And when allotment came along and native people again, were their land base getting further reduced, all the remaining land being opened up to uh, mainly corporation rail, railroads, right? Yeah. Railroads and mm-hmm. tycoons and companies and yeah, so everything was, yeah, the uh, capitalism can't function without somebody clearing the way. The, yeah, so, and clearing the way, and Native people were the biggest obstacle in the way, so they had to do all they could to make mm-hmm. make the most from their businesses and everything mm-hmm. like that. So, and and trying to like erase the culture of a people. You also are giving them like you're pressuring them into giving up the things that were given by, you know, given by the U.S. government, <laughs> you know, to <laughs> to indigenous communities. If, if, if you have these rights to hunting, these rights to this amount of land and stuff, but then you opt out of being native because you've been trained in these schools or whatever, you're given this deal. And then all of a sudden there's less native claim to that these things that are theirs and they can whittle away at that property that is being given that the minuscule wealth that has been given mm-hmm. back to the indigenous people of turtle island mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> just even trying to word these things it's just like oh right. this is so dark and so depressing but jeez, <laughs> yeah I, I i don't know if i articulated that well but um did you kind of get where I was coming from with that at this point? Yeah, yeah. I, I get you saying it's like, you know, just um, everything that being forced to engage in a system, but getting the short end of that system. Yeah, for sure. You know, like, yeah. Uh, you know, well, you need to become a farmer, but, you know, go over there and do it, right? Because mm-hmm. the, the, you know, white white folks need this land and we need... God. Um, and where you used to live, we're going to turn that into a state park where we can charge people to go in and enjoy nature. And Yeah, God. Oh. Yeah, so it all just ties mm-hmm. in, you know, the commodification of nature too. Yeah. And even the history of state parks has a lot of uh that's blatantly colonial you know how Mm -hmm. lands were created for the sole purpose of the amusement and entertainment of you know white folks who could afford to go pay to get into these areas and totally yeah it all serves that um yeah system right (laughs) absolutely and i you know i've been meaning to go back um I did a John Muir episode and talking about, you know, how he he 
work to establish national parks, which in so many ways was a good thing. But I don't think we addressed nearly well enough how some of these parks were, you know, not a good thing for the, <laughs> the native folks that live there. This is it wasn't a great deal. And it wasn't, you know, a good way to even manage the land, um, taking it away from the indigenous uh, management. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I at some point I'm going to revisit that episode and try to <laughs> try to tie in some of these these things a little bit more. So we often hear the phrase the legacy of residential schools. Um can you help me explain the reality of that legacy in terms of the intergenerational trauma that has affected indigenous individuals and communities? The way intergenerational trauma plays out is what we see today with a lot of our communities um in terms of not knowing uh, traditions, mm-hmm. language loss. I know mm-hmm. very little of my language. Yeah. Um, so I think that in turn, Native folks who who were growing up um, not knowing those things, it can, it can make it challenging to try to uh, understand uh, your role and responsibility amongst your community yeah so and not only that but when we talk about the um intergenerational intergenerational trauma part all that brutality the children experienced in these institutions when they had children of their own that's how they knew how to raise their children yeah right so if they experienced whippings beatings they weren't taught how to be parents Mm -hmm. they weren't taught how to love their children that's what they knew so a lot of times you'll see that happening in the communities in terms of dysfunction and things like that yeah and i don't want to focus and i don't want to say like oh that's every every native family because that Mm -hmm. you know that not every native family had that some of them broke that cycle early on or some of them didn't behave that way but i think for those that really hurt and really harmed and those who had that really bad experience and then they had children of their own, you mm-hmm. know, that's where that gets down, that intergenerational part where yeah. every time, you know, those children are getting hurt and harmed, it's almost like that priest or that nun or whoever is doing that because that's who they learned mm-hmm. it from. Mm-hmm. And then this kind of a self, almost like a self-hatred, you know, growing up or if you uh, were being raised in an institution where everything native is wrong and bad and evil and no good, then you're going to, that's the thought process in your mind. And you don't want to be native. You don't want to be, it's not, it's no good. Don't be that way. Yeah. Perhaps loathing native people, your own people, Mm -hmm. because that's Mm -hmm. uh, something that, uh, uh, is wrong and bad and things like that. So I think that that kind of mentality that was, um, created in these institutions got Mm -hmm. passed down because once those kids that were abused and hurt and harmed when they had their own children that's how they treated their children so it got passed down and handed down totally so and not only that the things that came with that the self-medication and you know Mm -hmm. maybe turning to substances to um to cope yeah yeah and i've heard so many of the children of survivors talk about how their parents or their grandparents who were at these schools uh, refused to even talk about their experiences because they were so horrifically traumatic. But still, those experiences are are affecting the next generation so much, even if they won't even talk about it or go there, 
because it's mm-hmm. too dark. Yeah, I can't imagine trying to enjoy any of my native culture if I was being whipped for speaking my indigenous language. Like mm-hmm. these things are so deeply programmed. Um, it 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 must be so painful to try to do some of the work to de-traumatize yourself to to undo some mm-hmm. of that trauma and harm. Mm-hmm. And I am so so grateful to you for playing that role in people's lives for for doing that work um, and for helping other people through that, especially being at a school, teaching at a university that used to be one of these residential school facilities. You are doing some of the most amazing work that could be done out there. So I appreciate the hell out of everything that you've been pouring your time and energy into. Thank you. Yeah, Jimmy, I, I am... Quickly, I know you got to go, but uh, where can folks follow you and what can they do to, is there anything that they can do about residential schools? (laughs) 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 I do it to you, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) If if they can, if there's somebody who can create a time machine, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think that the the best way that I think folks can, I get, you know, is, is help is listen. Listen mm-hmm. and and learn and understand that uh, Native people are still here. Native people are not gone in the past. And there's a lot of things that we are having to decolonize. And in doing so, if we are talking about, you know, these uh, European American institutions and things like that is to uh, is to listen and not get defensive when we talk about it mm-hmm. and to also um, you know understand that not thinking that you know if, if it's white folks or white allies or whoever don't try to be the savior you know mm. just you know uh, just yeah. listen and learn right and yeah. try to just have that understanding and talk to native folks, you know, talk to native people, you know, get to listen to this podcast. You know? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Step one. Get, get <laughs> some, yeah. Get some education, you know, first. Yeah. And, yeah. But yeah. And, and people, if they want to uh, follow me on Instagram, that's kind of the platform that uh, I've been going with. It's mm-hmm. at Osage underscore native underscore scholar. So Osage mm-hmm. native scholar. Wonderful. And I, I love your content on there. Um, everyone should go follow Jimmy. He is amazing. He has a lot to to teach us. And yeah, I just, I love your voice. Thank you for using it for good. Thank you. Thank you for having me and um, helping out and uh, to bring more awareness to, to these issues. Of course. Of course. It's so important. It needs to be happening more. So, all right, Jimmy. Well, Cheers to you and thank you so so goddamn much. You you've been such yep. a joy to talk with about some heavy things. So <laughs> cheers. Come on down to the sidebar. Gonna make drinks and talk shit about capitalism. Welcome back to the sidebar, everyone. We're joined by Jesse Torres, who has a great drink for this episode. It's called the Osage Native Cooler, and it is so delicious. Um, I should have probably said, hi, Jesse, how are you or something, but I I usually do. But Oh, oh thanks for asking, Erica. I'm doing great. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. We've been hanging out, so (laughs) it seems redundant, but 
Yeah, this cocktail is spirit-free, so there's no booze in it. And really, you don't even miss it because the flavors are so nice. They work well together, and it uses a spirit-free spirit. Um, in this case, we're using Seedlip, and it really makes a huge difference because it adds a nice level of complexity that really elevates a drink. It makes you not even miss, you know, having alcohol. That's so true, dude. It, I... It's amazing how little I miss the alcohol drinking this because it's like there's so much complexity to it. There's so much flavor. And so it's just like, yeah, I, I made it last time without the seed lip and having that in there adds so much. It's such a good addition and it does not taste like a non-alcoholic drink. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, seed lip is one of my, my favorites. They're made in England and, you know, there's three different flavors and they all add really lovely different flavors to your drink, um, not unlike, you know, gin wood or something like that. Um, but there are other non-alcoholic spirits, too, that um, range or try to, to mimic things like rum or whiskey. And, you know, if, if you can and if you've seen them, like, there's some really good ones out there. There's a lot on the market these days. Um, and they're all pretty good. Um, I've tried a, quite a few of them. So, you know, if you want to elevate your spirit-free drinks you know, and add some some great flavor. Like this is a really good way to go because it's going to add something, you know, akin to having alcohol in your drink. Mm -hmm. um, or like in the case of Seedlip, like, you know, it doesn't necessarily like add the alcohol flavor. What it has instead are all these other complex flavors from like the different herbs and stuff that they use to really make uh, your drink more complex and interesting. Mm -hmm. So to make this drink, you're going to take 60 milliliters <laughs> of whatever non-alcoholic spirit. In this case, we're using Seedlip Garden 108. You're going to add 15 milliliters of honey or simple sugar syrup, 22 milliliters of fresh lime juice, and then you're going to add six slices of fresh cucumber and about six to eight mint leaves, a little small pinch of salt, and a couple slices of a jalapeno if you'd like that, if you like it a little spicy, and then some carbonated water to top it off. So to make it, you're going to add the cucumber, jalapeno, and mint, and you're going to muddle it at the bottom of the shaker. You're going to add the rest of the ingredients, so the seed lip, the honey, the fresh lime juice. Then you're going to add ice, give it a really good shake, and then fine strain it into a Collins glass or whatever glass you'd like. And then finally, top it with a little bit of soda and garnish with a beautiful bouquet of mint. So take a a few sprigs of mint, uh, give them a little slap to release the oils and all mm -hmm. that beautiful aroma, and then put it into like a slice of cucumber if you like so that it holds it, or you can use a pick to wrap it around, however you like to make it pretty, and add a straw and enjoy. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's so delicious. Yeah, I, I want to drink this like all the time. I feel like I can cut down on my drinking by substituting these once in a while, you know, because oh, like, yeah. it totally tricks my brain into thinking that I'm having alcohol. And like, I think the little bit of jalapeno in there adds like a little bit of a like kick, like you're drinking alcohol as well, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit of that spice. <laughs> yeah. It's so refreshing too. Like this is such a delicious drink. Like it's hard to not just guzzle it down. I know. I'm <laughs> like, fast. I know. It's going so fast. I wish I made another, damn it. <laughs> That's okay. But, and, and this is a good thing. Like if you do want to add spirit, you know, and you want to add alcohol to this drink, you can totally do that too. So instead of the seed lip, 
Um, you can add the same amount of like gin. Uh, gin really works really well, like Hendrix. Um, you know, you could also do tequila in this drink or, you know, really whatever you like. But, you know, I, I think that gin would be a perfect match. <laughs> awesome. Jesse, we, we can actually cheers in person right now. So yeah, cheers. This is the best part right here. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. <yay. laughs> Such a good drink. So, so grateful to you for putting together something so beautiful for this important episode. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure Jimmy was very happy with, with what you created. So, <laughs> and you know, I, I use Jimmy's recommendations, you know, we ask him, you know, what kind of ingredients does, does he like and, mm-hmm. you know, what to use. And these are the ingredients that he gave us and we made this beautiful drink that I yeah. hope you enjoy. It's perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jesse. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers and solidarity. Cheers. <laughs> I guess we say that at the end of, end of the episode, not this, but whatever. <laughs> but still, you can say it in the sidebar too. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thanks to Jimmy Beeson for coming on. Thanks to Jesse for the great cocktail. And thank you to Dreamweaver, that's DRM, WVR, and Rathbone for our theme songs. We're going to be moving to a bi-weekly schedule through at least the holiday season, so we'll check back with you guys after December to see if that changes. As always, if you like the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or check out Cocktails and Capitalism on Patreon. We'll see you the week after next. Next.